Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. On this week's episode, we will discuss chapter 35 of Order of the Phoenix, Beyond the Veil. This is a very action-packed chapter. I think, Micah, you noted it's probably the first big battle, right? Yeah, it is the first big battle. We have we, It's not just Harry versus Voldemort or whoever. This is it, man. This this Now, now we're involved. getting into it. Yeah, <laughs> the Setting story the is finally getting somewhere. The jelly legs <laughs> jinxes are flying. <laughs> so we'll discuss chapter thirty-five in a little bit. But first, two news items, Micah. I know you were very excited on Friday because the chapter readings of Sorcerer's Stone have resumed. Chapter twelve is out. Matt Lewis, Imelda Staunton, and Helen Howard, who plays Umbridge in the Australian production of The Cursed Child, they all read this chapter mm. together. I believe this was the Mirror of Erised. Yeah, I haven't given a listen to it yet. I was actually taken by surprise seeing that a chapter was published after our discussion last week. Maybe that's why it was published last week, just because <laughs> we talked so much about it and uh, put a little bit of pressure on them. But uh, it's good to see that these are back because I think people really did enjoy them. And I'm sure it'll be great to hear from Matt Lewis and Imelda Staunton, seeing her read ju- just as a normal person. We tend to associate her so much with Umbridge. With an evil character, yeah. It's like how a lot of kids, when they would watch the Harry Potter movies, they would develop this fear of Tom Felton, the actor, because they saw him play Draco Malfoy. So in a way, this is kind of like a good way to uh, improve your image for Imelda Staunton. Oh, she's not evil. She's actually pretty nice. I would just as you said that, it would have been funny if they did a chapter with like Tom Felton, Imelda Staunton, and Ray Fiennes all together. <laughs> all the enemies. <laughs> Repairing our image. Also, one other story we wanted to mention, Bloomberg, which is a reputable source, is reporting on this new long-awaited Harry Potter RPG that we've been talking about for probably over a year now. Some developers, and I think this is why they reported on this, some developers were concerned about J.K. Rowling's remarks, like we heard uh, was happening at... J.K. Rowling's publishers. J.K. Rowling has no involvement in the game, which does not surprise me. I mean, they developed this video game label, Portkey Games, to work on Harry Potter games. And they said on that site, the Portkey site, that these games are not canon. But they have the license to create these Harry Potter games. And I'm sure they're working with people in J.K. Rowling's offices who are guiding them to make sure they're, they're faithful adaptations to an extent. Um, so she has no involvement of the game in the game. It is an open world Hogwarts, and I think that's what we were all hoping for, right? Because we've never gotten an open world Hogwarts in a video game, and it would be so exciting to browse the school. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's what I've always wanted out of a game. We've gotten close with some of the Lego games using Hogwarts as a hub, or I think the original Chamber of Secrets game had a fairly explorable Hogwarts, but never really, that was never the purpose of the games. And I think that yeah. this game has a chance to really double and triple down on just being at the school. And I think if I remember correctly, in the 1800s. Right. Apparently this the plot line is that you are a late blooming wizard. So you join in like your fifth year or something. You get your skills late, which is an interesting premise. I would feel so robbed. <laughs> like <laughs> like that, you were expecting. If that were real life and they were like, oh, you're 15, you've missed the vast majority of your schooling years. But yeah, come on in. I'd be like, are you serious? You can start at year one. It's still Hogwarts, right? It's still seven years at Hogwarts, baby. 
Well, yeah, I guess that's the question. <laughs> Would you be forced to start in like year five with people who are the same age <laughs> no, as you? No, your classmates are just going to be real small. You're, you're oh, that's the, and they're that's yeah, awkward with a bunch of eleven-year-olds. A bunch of eleven-year-olds. Leviosa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to play this game anymore. It's going to feel creepy. <laughs> but an announcement was supposed to happen at E3 this year. That's the big annual video game conference, but it got canceled due to coronavirus. And now apparently they're going to make the announcement later this year. And here's the bad part: apparently this game is not coming until 2021. We kind of assumed it may be coming this year, but nope. Looks like it's coming next year. And that's probably best case scenario because these games, games that are really big like this, they face delays a lot of the time because there's so much to work on. When you say open world, are we looking similar to Breath of the Wild where it really was extensive beyond anything that I've ever played before? I think so, yeah. Mike is referring to the latest Zelda game because this article says Hogwarts and surrounding areas, I Mm. believe. Get trashed in Hogsmeade. (laughs) Hogsmeade, Forbidden Forest, the lake. Oh, there's definitely going to be goats at the Hogshead. You know it. (laughs) There's going to be like a little petting zoo behind the Hogshead. I think think this is set uh, like 100 years before all that, though. Oh, well, you know, people take liberties. They're expansion packs. Maybe (laughs) the goat, the pet a goat expansion pack. (laughs) The DLC. (laughs) Okay, so that's it for news. Let's jump into chapter by chapter. And like I said, this week we are discussing Order of the Phoenix, chapter 35, Beyond the Veil. And let's kick it off with our seven word summary. Serious. Falls. Through the <laughs> unknown to Sirius falls through the unknown to death. Yay! Now I'm thinking of the Frozen song into the unknown. I into won't sing it because I'm not Idina Menzel. Is that her name? <laughs> Adele Mazim. Adele Dazim. <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate your. Uh contribution to the show uh, I, i'm glad my contribution to the seven word story was the word the <laughs> feels like it really tied things together yeah complete <laughs> yeah. with a pause before it so let's uh head back to the department of mysteries when we last left harry he was being creeped on by lucius malfoy you just got punked yeah exactly but yeah essentially harry got punked sirius is not there as we all expected at least not yet And uh, him and his buddies are in a world of trouble. One introduction, though, in this chapter that I really enjoyed is that we finally get to see Bellatrix Lestrange. And I was curious, what are our initial impressions of her? Is she everything we hoped she would be from reading about her these last couple of books, but never meeting her in person? She's, She's awful. It's really... Uh, shocking though, it's a great introduction from a writing standpoint. You get this person that is just so overwhelmingly like over the top. She is a lot more enthusiastic than any of the nearest Death Eaters. And really just some of her behaviors like baby talking Harry. Um, she's thrilled to be there. Nobody's happier to be there than Bellatrix right now. And it just hurts more because Harry's at such a disadvantage. He's surrounded, he's outnumbered, and you get this woman that's just like talking about all of her, um, about what the Dark Lord wants and really just asserting her position amongst all of them. I think it comes through better in the movie though, because you see Bellatrix in the background and you see her wicked smile and you see her taunting 
it, she doesn't feel as present here as she does in the movie, in my opinion. I yeah, get that. I tend to agree. Um, for the most part, when I reread these books, I have my own interpretations of the characters, and I don't envision any of the actors from the movies, except Bellatrix. I always think Helena Bottom Carter when I'm reading these sequences, and she kind mm. of fills in those gaps for me, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's uh, similar to what I was going to say. I, I think why it comes across so great in the movie is because of Helena Bonham Carter and just the way she's able to portray evil. You see it in other films that she's a part of, but she is just such a good Bellatrix Lestrange. And Eric, as you said, she has this fierce loyalty, this fierce defense of Voldemort. When Harry says his name... She almost loses it, right? All the other Death Eaters, they just kind of hiss when they hear it. But she, she's next level. Yeah. And we see just how dangerous she is later on in the chapter because she's willing to use one of the unforgivable curses on Neville. She uses the Cruciatus curse. And this reminded me, and I can't remember who said this, if it was J.K. Rowling or somebody else, that Bellatrix, she basically likes to play with her food before eating it. And that's... <laughs> A really, maybe it was Helena Bonham Carter who said it, but you see that with Neville. She's willing to psychologically mess around with him, talking about his parents. Then she's willing to use a Cruciatus curse on him. And then finally willing to threaten his life unless Harry gives over the prophecy. Yeah, and, and, and the torture is the whole point. She talks about seeing how long Neville uh, can take till he breaks the way his parents did. Um, pretty dark stuff, honestly. But at this point, they, they, the Death Eaters, probably feel invincible. I mean, her using the Unforgivable Curse on Neville, what, what are they going to do to her? Check her in Azkaban? Um, yeah. There well, is not no to mention, they're up, they're up against a lot of children. Yeah. If any of this got reported back to the ministry, I don't think it would matter because they would just be on the run again. There is this chance that all these people with Harry are just going to become collateral damage. And I'm actually surprised we can talk about this later on in the chapter that even though they're all injured to some extent, that they all make it through because at the end of the day, they are just children. They're going up against these adults who are way more experienced, especially as it relates to dark arts. And the fact that they kind of get through all of this unscathed is is surprising to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. any Anytime there's a battle like this, we have talked about it in the past too like we wondered if all the kids would survive the final battle as well and we know some don't but for the most part a lot do and is that really realistic so do you think that all five of these kids you know surviving with very minor injuries is due to luck is due to circumstance is realistic I feel like at least in the beginning of the chapter, Harry's doing the work. Harry gets like he always relies on his intuition. And in this case, his intuition tells him to talk till he finds an opening, which he does. And and I, I, he actually does the work to escape, I think, which is which is really clever on his part, at least initially. I hope uh, Bellatrix is just taking care of herself because she may be in the early days of her pregnancy by this point <laughs> with Delphi. Good. Who makes yeah. her appearance during the cursed child? It explains Bella's fanaticism too, and I I think her husband is right there too. He is, yeah. Oh, yeah, it, you know, it was funny. I was that's exactly what I was thinking about when 
Lucius is giving direction and he's saying, okay, Rodolphus, you go this way. And my first thought was, oh, that's her husband. And does he know? Like, is he cool with the <laughs> fact that her and Voldemort are, uh, well, made again, love? That's if you believe, if you believe. Like I said, maybe she tripped up in the love room and that and it just inspired. <laughs> <laughs> she got a dose of it and just she went back that night. Voldemort was frustrated. She calmed him down and things went from there. <laughs> yeah, Eric, you, you were alluding to this, though, about Harry's ability to lead and his decision making, especially once he learns that Sirius is not at the ministry Oops. and- Lucius tells him it's time you learn the difference between life and dreams, Potter. And I thought that was such a like gut-punching moment for Harry because mm-hmm. you realize that he has screwed up majorly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he's made no bigger mistake in his life before this because he's essentially at this point led five of his friends to their deaths. Yep. Yeah. Then again, he is only 15, 16. So this is just a typical mistake that a child would make. But I do wonder, it makes you wonder, are there ways to tell the difference between life and dreams? Because I don't don't think it was ever made clear. So I don't know if Harry really ever had the opportunity to to decipher what's real and what's not in these visions. He should have looked for the hashtag. (laughs) <laughs> but but he should have listened to Hermione and taken her advice a little more seriously instead of rushing into this. I mean, he kind of did, but I guess he didn't enough. Yeah, no. the the goal in throughout all of Occlumency was to silence the dreams. Like you you can't you won't have to tell the difference between life and dreams if you're not having the dreams. Well, and didn't Snape try to warn him about this as well? That Voldemort yeah, so. might be able to plant visions. Well, and it turns out that and in this chapter, Lucius says that Voldemort is surprised Harry didn't come sooner. All of the times that Harry has seen the door and gone into the department has been apparently a push from Voldemort to pique his curiosity and get him to really want to understand what's in the prophecy. And apparently Voldemort's been really trying to like that shocked me. So like the dreams weren't just because Voldemort was thinking about the door for himself. I think that a lot of these previous visions Harry's had were also intrusions, hoping to get Harry like coax Harry out of Hogwarts, mm-hmm. which is really flawed if you think about it. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't have a whole lot of substance to the actual plan that Voldemort's putting together because what really do you think Harry is going to do? He's just going to up, run out of Hogwarts, make his way to the Department of Mysteries and pull down the prophecy, hope that there's a Death Eater there that can grab him and (laughs) hand over the prophecy to Voldemort. It's just so flawed, in in my opinion. It's not a very good plan that Voldemort has has tried here. And again, couldn't Voldemort himself, although they joke about it in this chapter, really come down and grab the prophecy himself? I mean, to be honest, like the prophecy is about him. He should be one of the two people with Neville being the question mark uh, that can actually grab it from the shelves. Part of me wonders if Voldemort was just tempted to see if he could trick Harry into doing this. Right. He wanted to see how far he could push Harry. Well, and I think he wants to kill two birds with one stone, right? Mm-hmm. Like, get the prophecy, also kill Harry. Just going back to Harry's leadership in, in this particular situation, though, what do we 
think about his decision-making. His first thought is, of course, his friends. How do I get them out of here? Because now I've created this really nasty situation that they're in. And I think it was brought up earlier, talk until you find your way out. And Harry Mm -hmm. is really good at that until he finally makes the decision to start smashing prophecies. And he the the dialogue that he engages in though is very revealing right we learn from malfoy that in fact there is this prophecy and harry has not been told about it by dumbledore who certainly knows about it and that and i think it it's a bit of another reality check for harry that he hasn't been kept in the know throughout this entire series right mm-hmm. or at least this this book yeah lucius is almost like a friend to harry in this moment because he's giving him important information and he's like willing to give it up. I guess just from a writing perspective, it's a bit of an an opportunity to uh, have an info dump, but I'm actually kind of surprised that Lucius is giving him the information that he wants. Agree. If I were Lucius, I may have been just like really shocked and just, I would just want to laugh at how in the dark Harry's been. And I don't think I would want to help him right now. Yeah. Some of them do though. Some of them are making kind of light of the situation apart from being like a compelling villain monologue i love a good villain monologue lucius must think he can talk harry into giving over the prophecy somehow like he tells him what it is to pique his interest further because he thinks he's going to somehow create like a winning argument that makes harry give it over but but harry is too smart for that he realizes the prophecy is the only thing keeping him or his friends alive at this point right i think andrew you had touched on the fact that Harry should have listened to Hermione because Bellatrix essentially makes the same argument straight to Harry's face that Hermione was making in the last chapter mm-hmm. or even two chapters ago. And that was Voldemort walk into the Ministry of Magic when they're so sweetly ignoring his return. The Dark Lord reveal himself to the Aurors when at the moment they are wasting their time on my dear cousin. Bro, you got both <laughs> sides telling you. No way Voldemort's coming to the ministry. So what are you thinking? It hurts. It hurts. And no mention of creature in this chapter. We find out later the method by which the lies were, you know, constructed and all that. But it's just, this is just the moment for shock and awe. And then you got to run, 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 run. But it raises the question, if you are Voldemort, why not infiltrate the ministry? Voldemort hung out uh, at Hogwarts on the back of Quirrell's head for a year. (laughs) And my question is, if he can be under Dumbledore's nose all year for an entire year, surely he can magic his way in and out of the Department of Mysteries for something as simple as a prophecy, right? (laughs) This is like beginner level. (laughs) In addition to seeing if he could tempt Harry, if he could lure Harry there, maybe he also wanted to test his Death Eaters. Maybe he wanted to see if they were up to the task. Oh, yeah, they've been kind of retired for like 14 years. And if you're the villain, Micah, if you're the boss, you try to put this work off on somebody else. So why should Voldemort have to cancel his plans one afternoon so he can go to the ministry? He doesn't want to do that. He's got other things to do. I I do think it's an incredible point, though, taking into the plot, uh, taking into account the plot of book one, because, again, Voldemort was very hands on with Quirrell when it meant his immortality. And the prophecy is no less important to Voldemort from a plot standpoint than the Sorcerer's Stone was. He, it, It's really going to tell him 
what happened with Harry and the scar and is going to help him learn to defeat Harry, which is what he wants more than anything. So frankly, the the way that they were able to, whether through a pizza party or otherwise, get everyone out of the ministry, they should have done this last September, last October. Um, and it would have been over with. Well, I think especially when we're making comparisons to Quarrel in book one, we have to remember Voldemort didn't have a body back then. So in order for him to be at Hogwarts, he had to basically possess Quarrel or be like a parasite on his body. Now Voldemort has a whole body to contend with. And that makes it a little harder, I think, to duck under the radar. Darn body. I miss being on the back of somebody else's head. <laughs> I miss All these just limbs so always easier. getting my way. <laughs> I miss living under a turban. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that this also, it does play, you know, to Voldemort's advantage, the fact that the ministry is completely ignoring his return. So why would he do anything to potentially blow his cover when so many Death Eaters work at the ministry anyhow? Right. I like that. I, I, Andrew, I like what you said, too, about having the Death Eaters accessible as well. The fact that they can do his bidding, he doesn't need to do, go at it himself where he very much needed to do that in book one because nobody even knew if he was still around at that time. Mm-hmm. So hard to rally people to your cause when they don't even know if you're still alive. Right. Voldemort was the original mask wearer, come to think of it. Being under that turban all those months. I'm glad you mentioned that, actually, though, because the masks are something I totally forgot about, um, more or less from the books, the way that they're described, the masks and hoods, very KKK-y versus oh, yeah. in in the movie, it's, I don't know, a skull mask, whatever the hell aesthetic they're going for. But there's very much uh, a lot of talk in this chapter or a lot of words that that really show you how big or large their hoods or masks are. They their hoods and masks are getting caught on things. They're unable to speak through the masks. And I'm like, like it's pitch black or in some of these shaded areas, and these people are still in masks. Like how fanatic do you have to be to inconvenience yourself in that way? But I don't mm-hmm. know. They just they are. They probably look ridiculous, to be honest. Yeah. People like this always do. And the thing is, I mean, I I agree with you, Eric. It's probably terribly uncomfortable, but there are plenty of historic examples of people having no problem wearing this kind of mask. Mm -hmm. So one one thing I wanted to ask was since Dumbledore kept Harry in the dark about the prophecy and he's finally learning about it now, Harry's natural curiosity about the dreams never sent him into the Department of Mysteries to retrieve it like Voldemort had hoped the visions would do. That's something that Lucius brings up in this Mm. chapter. So was Dumbledore's plan to keep Harry out of the loop a good one? Because thanks to Harry being out of the loop on this, he did not rush off to the Department of Mysteries until now, but... Huh. Right. But I would almost argue he rushed into the worst possible situation. He did. And, And I think that had Dumbledore at least given some information over to... Harry, he would have been able to know that the vision was perhaps a fake. I don't know that with 100% certainty he would have been able to know, but the big clue would have been the fact that Voldemort is telling Sirius to retrieve the prophecy. And and if Harry knew anything about prophecies, he would have known that 
Sirius couldn't retrieve the prophecy. Right. right. And the big mistake in all of this was not confirming for absolutely sure where Sirius was that night. If he knew that he could trust himself to distinguish between feelings that he gets in his scar, I think that would have helped too. Yeah. I mean, he notes multiple times that the pain in his scar is nowhere near as bad as some of the events earlier on in the book. And if he had had one conversation with Dumbledore to be like, hey, if Voldemort's torturing somebody and killing them, you're going to know. <laughs> like, it's going to mm-hmm. be rough. Um, so, you know, if Harry knew that he could trust that sort of feeling, I think that might have made a difference, too. Yeah, the, the alarm bells aren't going off for him the way that they they normally would be. Mm-hmm. And Creature was just mentioned, but it made me think that perhaps there was another ally also at Hogwarts besides Snape that we didn't think about, and that's Dobby. Uh. Dobby probably could have checked for Harry if Sirius was at Grimmauld Place. Mm-hmm. That's not a bad point. Snap his way around town until he found out <laughs> where Sirius really was. Harry would have to um, tell him about Grimmauld Place because the Fidelius charm, but I, I don't think that's uh, a problem. Could have worked around that. Yeah. Now, Andrew, you have a another interesting question in here, which is, could Harry have just put the prophecy back on the shelf and <laughs> ran away? First of all, I add nothing but interesting questions to the doc. Thank you for <laughs> noting that. Um, yeah, I mean, it seemed like the mere, the fact that the prophecy was just sitting there meant it was safe. We know this. So why couldn't Harry have just put it back there? I wonder... If a certain author maybe could have said, well, you know, once it's picked up, then anybody can grab it. So maybe there's that little rule. But it seems like that would have been a good way to protect it. The problem is, Harry doesn't know anything about a prophecy. He doesn't even know that a prophecy is a prophecy. So, of course, he wouldn't have thought to put it back on the shelf. I also think there's no givebacks. Like, once you take it (laughs) off the shelf, that's it. That's it forever? There are givebacks. There are 100% givebacks because the, the whole reason the prophecy hall exists is so to be studied, right? So unspeakables or people that have access to these prophecies can take them down and explore them and analyze them and then put them back up. It also just seems like a, a pretty bad system to say that um, once the prophecy is off the shelf, then anybody can have it. Like, what's the point? Then of that protection, yeah. it would be like, right. you know, when you go shopping and stuff have has those security tags on it, it would be like saying there's a certain point where once you take that off the shelf, the security tag no longer has any meaning because you have the thing in your hand. <laughs> yeah, right. You can just walk right out of the store. Right. And that that really bothered me more than anything else in this chapter outside of what happens to Sirius because... <laughs> One of the Death Eaters just says Accio prophecy, and it's about to leave Harry's hand Uh, before he throws up a protection charm. uh, And yeah, I agree with Laura. That's just so silly, the fact that, oh, now anybody can get it. Well, the magic (laughs) is on the shelf, though. Like, the magic is on the holder that's holding. Because the prophecy, I don't know where the glass comes from. But the prophecy itself is just encased in something. The only way you're going to actually be able to protect it is by putting, to use your example, the security tags from, God, I'm thinking of like Claire's on the the, the thing. You, you got to, <laughs> you know, so once you take it off the shelf, it is anybody's game, but you could put it back on the shelf because once you do, the holder is what has the magic that prevents you from taking it. Like, 
Yeah, I, I, I just I think the magic is where it should be in this case. I don't think it's necessarily stupid. Uh, I had a really hard time with this. I was like rereading this on the couple of occasions where Death Eaters tried to Accio the prophecy and it like flew to the tips of Harry's hands. In that moment, I was like, okay, this should have been shown not to work. Because, yes. like, what is the point of keeping Harry alive at this point? They're afraid mm-hmm. they're going to smash the prophecy. Okay, just, like, run him until he's exhausted and then Accio that and then kill him. Boom, you're done. Could Voldemort have wanted to kill him himself? So yeah, maybe there was a directive, true. don't kill Harry. Don't kill Harry, either. yeah. But still, it just seems like if it's that easy to get it once it's off the shelf, then yeah. it seems... There should have been a plan in place for the moment that Harry took it off the shelf. The only plan is, give it over to me. Like There needs to be more of a plan there other than hand it over to me. There's a history here between Harry and Malfoy, too. It's not like these people don't know each other or that Harry is in any way intimidated by Lucius Malfoy. He's not. So maybe that was the wrong person. Maybe it should have been Bellatrix or it should have been another of the Death Eaters who was doing this quote-unquote negotiating. And they should have just started picking off Neville, Luna, Ginny, Ron, Hermione to make a point to Harry. Yeah. And I think they're very hesitant to do it. Did they even attempt to disarm any of these teenage wizards i was wondering that everyone still has their wands i think they almost look at it as a joke doesn't bellatrix make light of it when they start to raise their wands and lucius kind of calms the situation that's a great part about lucius in this chapter is that he is kind of like the mediator and i thought about just the whole relationship that the Malfoys and the Potters seem to have throughout the course of the series, they they sort of unwittingly save each other a lot. And it's kind of ironic to me. Even in this moment, Malfoy is he's not saving Harry necessarily, but he's he is kind of through his words and he mm-hmm. saves him from a, a spell a little bit later on. I know the focus of that spell is to retrieve the prophecy, but I just I find it interesting. That's a good point. I mean, I just think about later on, right? Harry mm-hmm. saves Draco in Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. Narcissa saves Harry. I think you guys are really sick for arguing in favor of like how they should have been treating the children. Like, oh, disarm them, kill them all, <laughs> pick them pretty, off one by one. It's pretty obvious. Like, well, none of these kids know wandless magic um, and nonverbal spells. So it, yeah. it is a little, it's a little comical I remember reading this chapter for the very first time and thinking, oh, my God, this and the next one and thinking, oh, my God, this is going to make the coolest movie ever. Because like the, these cha- the, well, <laughs> well, these chapters, these chapters are so action packed. But if you look at how that's evolved into now, modern day Fantastic Beasts films, there's no verbal spells. Uh, all the adults just know how to do nonverbal magic. Um, and in the movie version of this, uh, all the Death Eaters and all the Order members fly in, which is just 
absurd. But if you then go back and read this chapter in the books, everyone, even the Death Eaters, are shouting their spells. Uh, Hermione's able to take the voice away from one and he can't, like, do anything. Like, it's it's a little bit comical, sort of, how everyone is still sort of a fifth grader throwing Jelly Legs curses when it comes to battling. There's no sort of evolution of that that we see here. They're pretty evenly matched against these kids, honestly. Yeah, and... Mm. Andrew, to to answer your question, I think the reason that we're bringing up some of these small, I'll I'll say they're smaller plot holes, is that they take away from the sense of urgency and the sense of fear that I feel Death Eaters inspired up until this point. Mm. Like, I'm thinking about you know, in Goblet of Fire, when we first see the Death Eaters, they're terrifying. And we see them here in the Department of Mysteries, and they're up against five teen or six teenagers, and they don't think to disarm them at the very beginning when they catch them in row 97. Like, that would have been so easy. It would have, yeah. it would have really, I mean, of course, it would have made this a much shorter chapter. But still, I can see why this was a harder book to write. Um, Mm -hmm. I know that this is something we've heard before, that Prisoner of Azkaban sort of wrote itself. Um, But then Order of the Phoenix was a difficult book to write. And I can see why, um, because there, you know, there are so many moving parts, but also there are a lot of like moments that we as readers were expecting to come that finally come in this book, like this first battle, this first confrontation. And... There's there are a lot of expectations that come with that, but then there are also some some things that were set up previously that kind of had to be undone, like time turners, um, and then sort of this magic that surrounds prophecies and like what is the point of yeah. you know this protection if it means nothing as soon as you take it off the shelf? So no, that's it's, it's, that's fair. Yeah, it's a it's just a lot to try and put together. It's a lot of world building. So I am empathetic, um, mm-hmm. but as we're reading this book, and I don't want to like because I know a lot of people love this book. To me, this probably feels like one of the weaker points in the series. And it's funny, like, I don't know about you guys, but reading this the first time, I didn't think about stuff like this at all. <laughs> no, of course no, not. I was kid. like 14 when I read this for the first time. Right, right. Yeah. And now we have to talk about it on a podcast, so we're thinking more critically. To that point Laura made, even Umbridge is smart enough to, quote unquote, disarm Harry and Hermione before bringing them into the forest with her and yet here you have a whole collection of death eaters and you're assuming that at least let's say one or two of them is smart enough to take that road and and maybe you don't disarm harry fully because he's got the prophecy in his hand but the other five you easily could well and yeah i think it's fine to criticize you know our perspective and saying that of course their approach should have been a little bit more you know aggressive but yeah. Andrew, despite what you heard, the Death Eaters aren't here for a pizza party. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the other thing to keep in mind. You just mentioned they got to be careful around Harry because of the prophecy. I think they got to be careful around everybody because of the prophecy. We They don't know what Harry is going to do with that prophecy at any given moment. He could toss it to one of them. He could accidentally drop it when he looks at Luna being killed. Like They have to be extremely careful because the directive from Voldemort is get the prophecy. 
and they don't want to upset him. So I can kind of understand why they are tiptoeing to an extent. Do you think it's possible that some of these Death Eaters, their magic could be a bit rusty because of how long they've been locked up in Azkaban? Oh, yeah. Yeah, very possibly. Also, they're working it, in this veil room. There's a lot of steps. You know, you got to step down into it. Maybe they're a little older, so they can't like... It's, it's yeah. a tough environment to be they fighting in. been on a Stairmaster lately, so they're not ready. <laughs> right. <laughs> They've been in quarantine due to COVID-92. <laughs> I will say a lot of the spells do seem to miss them by mere inches. And there is, a, I think, a successful campaign of stress and you know anxiety over who's going to get hit with something and, and it is at least something that jenny's leg is broken that neville gets so messed up that ron whatever happens to ron and you know i i think that as a kid it definitely played very well that i was like oh man they're gonna be decimated it's a problem yeah and and we'll talk a little bit more later on about just the impact that the battle has physically on a number of, of these characters. But one of the other pieces of information that gets dropped by Harry in this conversation before things start to get out of control and people start running off to different rooms in the Department of Mysteries is that Voldemort is a half-blood. And Harry uses this kind of as a in a taunting way towards the Death Eaters. And it made me think about what is the Death Eaters' opinion? Do they even know at this point? Do they care that Voldemort is in fact a half-blood? So we're going to talk more about that in bonus Mugglecast. Mm. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a good question. <laughs> they it's, they it's, gloss over it when Harry asks. Yeah, it's very satisfying kind of that Harry gets to stick that to them in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way. And I, I think each Death Eater would have a separate opinion on what that means to them. All right, we'll talk about that on our Patreon today. Mm-hmm. And we did mention that spell that gets deflected. It ends up hitting one of the the prophecies, or actually several, and one of them hits the floor. And out of that prophecy, I know, Andrew, if you can do your best Dumbledore impersonation here to read what we hear, but it caused a flurry of theories from what I remember when this book first mm-hmm. came out as to what this all meant, the fact that we're getting to hear this other prophecy. We don't know what it means, mm-hmm. but people definitely had some thoughts on it. At the solstice will come anew and none will come after. That's it. That's the line. Yeah, that's the <laughs> line. But for for folks who weren't reading the series back when it was actually being released, the theories that were abound about what was going to come anew at the solstice was it going to be deathly hallows at one point like i I Mm. remember people talking about this because obviously none will come after then we ended up with cursed child so that wasn't true but (laughs) (laughs) well prophecies are only true insofar as you enact them right isn't that what we learned that is true Mm -hmm. but does anybody remember anything else there's definitely some good ones well they ordered the phoenix book release date was the solstice actually that year uh well two- it was close wasn't it like june 23rd no it was like the 20th into the 21st okay. uh in 2003 oh, yeah, right. yeah oh okay so there's a little well hmm that's interesting because hmm. <laughs> none will come after yeah jk rowling thought this is gonna be my final book <laughs> this is so long book five done <laughs> or maybe but it was it- just a, a clever diversion because she knew the kind she knew what we were doing as a fandom and I think that as a writer, 
you know, there are a lot of ways that you can kind of lead your audience away from something that you, you know, you don't want them paying too much attention to. And this might have been that, you know. I think ultimately what this is, is just to show what happens when a prophecy breaks open. Yeah. I know no theory is safe here on MuggleCast, but I, <laughs> I, I think it's just that simple. So in order to, like, if you pulled down a prophecy and you're like, hey, I want to see what this says. <laughs> you just smash you it. You smash it? Is that how you get it? Or is there a way for you to extract it? There's got to be a way to extract it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So nothing more to say about that prophecy, but uh, Harry makes some uh, quick decision making, I guess, and uh, they're off, right? They're running. I thought for the movie, though, this was a really cool scene with them running through the Hall of Prophecies, smashing things, fighting the Death Eaters. Ginny's moment was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, it's not not as cool in the books. I mean, they they make their way, they split up into uh, groups of three. And uh, Harry, Neville, and Hermione end up together. Ron, Luna, and Ginny end up together. And we stay, of course, with Harry. And uh, their first stop is the Time Room. And just a weird series of events happen here. Yeah, so one of the Death Eaters' head starts shrinking into a baby. And it's an interesting look at what happens in this room. But then Hermione is like, you can't hurt a baby, so let's not attack him. <laughs> Hermione, he's only temporarily a baby. He's still got his full adult body on him. It's just the head. I thought it was a little bizarre that Hermione suddenly feels bad about attacking this Death Eater just because his head shrunk. Well, I don't know that it's just his head. I mean, if you look at his behavior throughout the rest of the chapter, he's sort of thrashing around like a baby. But still has that full-grown body. Yeah, but it was if, just his head. if his head regressed to that of a baby wouldn't it make sense that his brain would too yeah yeah so what i i think i think that hermione is at this moment at least interpreting this as like no this is actually a baby now yeah he's not much of a threat after this point yeah he's just kind of in the way at times yeah but I, i'm curious as to why jk rowling even wrote this into the chapter, it seems like a very, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's symbolism that we're missing. It just seems like a very odd thing to happen despite everything that's going on. Or is it just, hey, let's not forget we're in the ministry of magic and this kind of stuff well, can happen. Yeah, I kind of I think that's it. And the fact that to show how magic can go awry in this special area shows why it's locked away. Like it just justifies the rest of the world building happening around here that oh if you accidentally put your uh head in the hourglass thing um this is what could happen you could literally de-age like i i think that it it leaves um it, it gives some kind of a reference point that we can see practiced unspeakables actually working on time using those same instruments that these kids are going around shattering same with the brains showing how they're dangerous helps the book it helps the story even though for us it's very very weird to see a grown death eater with the baby's body and even in, in our mind's eye it, it almost reminded me of something you would see in like a cartoon or you know a, it just it's a it's a light-hearted moment within an otherwise serious set of circumstances yeah, yeah for sure true. one character in my opinion that stood up 
above all the rest in this chapter was Neville. And I really think this is his chapter. Give it up for Neville Longbottom. (laughs) I don't think he probably gets enough credit, but I I do think that J.K. Rowling pushed him to the forefront in this chapter. He's a fierce ally of, of Harry's. He's probably the most Gryffindor of the bunch, I would argue, in this chapter. And we learn a bit about his wand history in that he's using his father's wand. So... The fact that it snaps, I think, is a good thing Mm -hmm. because now he's able to progress and move forward. We've actually heard like Ron had similar issues as well because I think he was using Charlie's wand for a period of time, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we know how not having your own wand can be problematic. And I think um, hopefully moving forward, uh, Neville will be much more accomplished. It's it's kind of sad though, too, because he talks about his grandmother and and I think there's a part of Augusta Longbottom that wants Neville to live up to Frank. And part of that is using his wand, but clearly yeah. he needs his own. Yeah, she's trying to force him into the mold of his father. And ultimately, he can't be his father, you know? I think that this, you know, this is probably something we see real life examples of all the time, of, you know, parental figures trying to force their children into a certain mold. And it just doesn't work um, Mm -hmm. because you have to let people be who they are. Do you guys think that Neville is at the forefront here because the prophecy also could have been about him? That's where I thought you were going with this, Mike. That's what I like about that part of it is that having just seen Neville be kind of a badass, Gryffindor-esque, uh, brave person, you th- it, it makes it much easier for you to swallow that it could have been him that the prophecy was referring to when you find out in like two chapters. Yeah. But I guess my question is, is that what J.K. Rowling is trying to get across here? Is this symbolism of some yes, sort? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I think, you know, Harry and Neville have been on this journey together the whole time. They just don't know it. Uh, yeah, we can definitely take the conversation in, in that direction. I think that it, it's a good question about why she pushes him to the forefront. I, I just think it's it's time for Neville to step forward too. And obviously he was making great strides in Dumbledore's army, but I, I don't think it's unintentional that he ends up with Hermione and with Harry. And really in part, he's the large reason why Harry's able to make it through this chapter and and just the the whole sequence of him kind of stumbling down the steps in the veil room you know he's completely like beaten up and broken at this point and then bellatrix steps in and actually performs a cruciatus curse on him the bravery that he shows in that moment of just unwavering loyalty to to harry and to the cause Mm -hmm. i think is is enough to say yeah he is the most gryffindor of the chapter after I, having his face broken in too I, I yeah i was gonna say i don't disagree with any of that but did she have to break his nose and make him talk <laughs> like this the whole time what did he do to her i think that's blood harry it's, just, is it it's supposed to be comic relief it's awful it's just <laughs> double door and and oh my god you guys the way jim dale reads it he's literally holding his nose the entire time he's reading Neville's lines. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it's supposed to be comical, but I just can't get behind anything Neville's doing. I'm like, Neville, stop talking. Neville, you're so annoying. Stop talking. Like, 
Her- he's trying to save everybody, Eric. I know! His hero moment is completely overshadowed by the fact, the way it's written, anyway. Because J.K. Rowling didn't have to do this. She only does this with Hagrid, usually, uh, where she'll use their accent to, or Enflor, I guess, uh, to mm-hmm. show what it really sounds like. There's a literary term for that. Um, but it just, I think it undercuts Neville's heroism because I can't stand reading these lines from him. Yeah, and I think also, you know, if we're looking at examples like Haggard and Floor, who obviously have, you know, longer arcs um, throughout the series of having different speech patterns from the majority of other characters, there's a really good job done with sort of introducing those accents a little bit stronger and kind of letting them soften a little bit because as readers we know like you introduce that Hagrid has a thick accent that Fleur has a thick accent and we get it and as they'll continue talking in a scene it'll kind of taper off a little bit because we don't need it constantly thrown in our face since you know we read it that way from the start that's how we'll read it internally and I feel like that's the mistake here is that you know, we could have had this introduced maybe a couple of times with Neville and we would have gotten the idea and it wouldn't have been quite so annoying to read <laughs> if it weren't constantly happening for seven or eight pages. I also think it's a moment of strength, too, though, despite it being Neville at his weakest moment, he's still willing to fight the fight. And Absolutely. I think that says a lot about him as a character. And, and I love the physical aspect of of Neville during the actual battle that takes place in the, in the veil room. Like he knows he doesn't have a wand, but he's able to pick one up and jam it into a death eaters eye. Like that's resourcefulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's that was so painful. Ugh. He tackles people. He's tackling right. everybody he can, even after having the curse performed on him too. This is going to happen at a wizarding world theme park. One day there's going to be a bad guy there and, Somebody's going to stab somebody with a physical wand, and then those wands are going to be banned from the theme parks. Oh, those wands will never be banned from the theme parks. They uh, make them too much money. Oh, true. Maybe Ugh. they'll we create don't care a new if they're ride. Dangerous. Neville's eye-stabbing Department of Mysteries romp. <laughs> That'd be fun. It'd be like one of those shooter games. Shooting really carnival brings, games. It brings whole new meaning to the term interactive wand. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And the point about Neville, how he's talking and, and it being kind of comedic in a way. I I also thought about Ron when you said that. And Ron's almost comical in a way too when they finally meet back up and he's got like blood bubbling out of his mouth and he's making jokes about the planet room. And even <laughs> even when he goes after the brain, right? Like there's that freeze frame moment and it's kind of funny. But there's also a darkness to comedy, I think, and we see it, you know, in different movies and, and other things. But I, that's kind of what I took away from from that as well. That it's funny up until it's you realize there's a certain reality to it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the fallout of this sequence before we actually get to the veil room, and everybody's pretty beaten up at this point, right? Right. Hermione and Luna have both been knocked unconscious. We don't know how much more serious it is for Hermione because she's been hit with a curse versus Luna, who I think just kind of hit her head against a cabinet or something. Not that that's any better. 
Ginny has a broken ankle. I, I like her fierceness though in this chapter. She thinks she can walk on it and then realizes she needs Luna's help. Uh, yeah. You mentioned Ron. He's he's bleeding from the mouth. He's consumed by laughter, and then he's attacked by a brain. But that's kind of his own fault. And then <laughs> he's lost his mind. Neville, his wand is destroyed. He's been he's about to be tortured by Bellatrix, and then he's hit a little bit later on in that fight with the Jelly Lake Curse, so he can't even walk properly. Right. It, this is a ragtag group of people. But Harry's okay. Heck, well, of course, he's the chosen one. <laughs> untouched everything just kind of flew around him he was this isn't his first romp with evil people so (laughs) (laughs) no people really just don't want to break the prophecy this is what they came there for nobody's going to directly aim a spell at him exactly right right now this prophecy has made made him invincible in a way pretty (laughs) much his best protection yet (laughs) yeah of course we can talk about the irony of um the two people who ultimately are responsible for the prophecy breaking mm-hmm. it falls yeah. it falls out of harry's ropes right and then neville kicks it but it's not his fault it's whoever cast the jelly legs on him right of course i just think it's it's highly symbolic that it's the two people it's two of the people the prophecy could have been about yeah, yeah. it's a good moment i think because there is all this effort to protect it from both sides really and then mm-hmm. it just accidentally falls out at the end and it's well, like, and well, I, that's gone. That sucks. Yeah. And to Laura's point, there is that moment between Harry and Neville where they kind of watch it die. They like nobody else notices. Yeah. It's not like Lucius Malfoy is all of a sudden going to stop and go, no, although that <laughs> I'm pretty sure that happens in the movie. Um, but Neville and Harry just kind of watch it fizz out. They can't really make sense of it because the sounds of spells and broken, crumbling stone benches and all that. But they kind of watch it together. It's very romantic. And Harry and Neville kissed after that. (laughs) Yeah. It's gone. I love you. (laughs) Light some candles. (laughs) Yeah. Say a little prayer for the prophecy that was. Let's move on to the final battle of this chapter. And uh, everybody makes their way back to the veil room. I don't know if it was kind of like a forced movement back there by the Death Eaters because they try and kind of push Harry and crew to one central location. But uh, yeah, it, then it's just mass chaos, right? Dogs and cats living together in the same space it doesn't work. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty epic it, and scene. This, and it it's, is. It's great to see Tonks and Remus and Sirius and Kingsley all come in, and um, you know, then of course Dumbledore comes in a few minutes later, and Harry has this electric feeling go through him, and he knows <sighs> he knows that they're saved, even though Dumbledore has sucked. This whole book, he still knows that deep down, Dumbledore's got style, and he can take care of business. It's wonder... it's kind of interesting how Harry, he doesn't feel mad that Dumbledore's there. It's nothing but joy. He's just so relieved. It's like Phoenix Song. It's like when you hear yeah. it and you're oddly comforted. That's how mm-hmm. Harry feels mm-hmm. now. Yeah. I wonder if there's some part of Harry deep down that's like, Ugh, finally. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and, and where has like, Dumbledore been? What, like, what? Why is Dumbledore so late yeah. to this party? 
but the way that Dumbledore immediately comes in and and the way his level of magic is described, you get a lot of this in the next chapter, which is what I love about the next chapter, why it's one of my favorites. The only one he ever feared. Uh, but the way his magic is described as being like a hook that pulls a Death Eater that's running away, quote, like a monkey, uh, just pulls him like with an imaginary hook whoop, right back to where he was so that Dumbledore can get him. Uh, yeah, it's epic. Amazing. Yeah, there's just nobody like Dumbledore. And now, like, the Grandmaster Wizard has entered the fray. The only crime here, the, the most disappointing bit, is that he's paying next to no attention to this fight between Sirius and Bellatrix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's very much like, uh, I, don't, I don't know, like, what the right comparison, but I always think it's like, oh, man, dad's here. Everybody's got to go home. Like, that, <laughs> that's what happens to the Death Eaters because they yeah. want no part of Dumbledore at all. And it's just complete scrambling at this moment for, for them, except, as you mentioned, for Bellatrix, who's dueling with Sirius. And uh, we know what happens there, but you had a funny question, Andrew, and I know you took it out, but I'm going to ask it anyway. It is related to Mad-Eye Moody, <laughs> which was, oh. you know, we see Moody actually in in a very defeated state. Definitely doesn't happen in the films. He's basically lying unconscious uh, with blood kind of dripping out of his mouth. His eye has been you know, detached from him. And uh, somebody steps on it. Is it Neville who steps on it? And, and somebody you were wondering too. whether or not yeah. that hurts him. It may have been Harry. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yeah it, was it must Harry. have hurt, right? I don't know. Does it? It though? must have hurt I... to have your eye stepped. Well, because his eye, I mean, it's just, it's this magical eye. You can always see in any direction with it, which kind of makes me think that it's a part of him, whether or not it's actually in his eye hole. So I bet it would hurt. But, but he's unconscious, tough. so he wouldn't feel it. Yeah, yeah, in this moment yeah. he wouldn't. Yeah, that's a good question, though. I know, that's but why I put it in. But then you took it out. But he's not the uh, <laughs> he's not the only one. I mean, uh, Tonks is is beaten up pretty bad. There's there's a scene kind of where she is falling down the steps. Um, Remus, Sirius, Kingsley seem to be holding their own. And the one thing that bothered me a little bit about this whole battle sequence is that you don't really see the other side messed up that much and it makes me wonder like how good is the order you know oh shots fired well yeah maybe it's because the death eaters are out for blood Mm. like i know that the order needs to act in self-defense but they're not people to go around and just randomly kill people or hurt people you know what i mean i think they're just trying to save the kids in this moment not necessarily attack and kill these death eaters so maybe that's why you don't see as much force as you see from the other side i like that theory and i think too the death eaters have the more defensible position being on the bottom of the stairs versus at the top of the stairs Mm -hmm. so i think there might be something to do with that as well that the death eaters just have better tactical strategic positioning right now yeah interesting Getting back to Dumbledore, I will say I think I prefer the movie version of this where he comes in once Voldemort has arrived. Right. I agree. I don't know. It just felt more epic. Yeah, because he comes through the flu network versus like, I'm here in the door frame. Doesn't, you know, right. doesn't inspire. Despite Neville's or J.K. Rowling's description, like it, it just doesn't, it's not as powerful. Coming yeah. through a fireplace, that's powerful. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, his first line is, you shouldn't have come here tonight, Tom. Yeah, love that. Which is badass. Yeah. The fight in the movie, not so much. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. I, <laughs> I, I compared to the book, compared to the book. Okay. No, he, he the whole fountain comes alive. Yeah. None of that happens in the movie. Yeah. Weak. Uh, 
terrible job. He uses water. He uses water and throws it at Voldemort. No, but the symbolism to the fountain defending. Come on. All right, we'll we'll talk about it later. (laughs) We need to debate this. Yeah, it's like a Pokemon battle. Basically, yeah. that means if, uh, you, if you debate it, then you and Andrew can't be on the same team, Micah. You... <laughs> I know. That's okay. Wait, you're changing up the teams this late in the game? <laughs> well, hold on. I need to review the movie again before I make any decisions. And when he's spinning Voldemort inside the water ball, it's like he's trying to mold clay or something. I don't know. It wasn't. <laughs> now didn't I do just it for now me. I hear right. Unchained Melody in the background. <laughs> All right. So the tragic moment of this chapter was not Ron being attacked by a brain or Hermione being knocked out by a curse. Or the prophecy being broken. Or the prophecy being broken. Or McNair being attacked. That's a great connecting the threads back to Prisoner of Azkaban. We get uh, McNair mentioned. It's that Sirius goes through the veil. And he just falls through. There's no fanfare. It It just happens. Yeah. It's a quick fleeting moment. Harry is in denial at first. He can't believe it. I heard voices on the other side. He can't be dead. No, Harry. He's gone. And Remus keeps saying that, but I wonder where his basis for knowledge is on that. Like, does Remus know the secrets of the veil? How does somebody know that Sirius is gone? He must, if he was so sure. There really should be like an undo period with the veil. Like, if you fall through <laughs> it, you have, you have five seconds. It's like how you can unsend an email in Gmail for like 10 seconds. You Wait, got a you 10 can? second. Yeah, yeah, it's the best feature ever. I use it every day because I fire off emails with lots of typos. And then I'm like, wait, uh, typo. But um, yeah, that's what that's what the veil needs. A five second grace period <laughs> to undo your actions. To hit undo. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm for it. But yeah, it, it's it's tragic because on, on a number of levels, obviously, but also because it seems as if he avoids the killing curse at first but then gets hit right in the chest with something that I'm not sure was a killing curse. It was just enough to basically push him into the veil and he dies as a result of falling through the veil. Yeah. yeah it, it's not that his face goes blank. His face actually changes to surprise. And then at the same time, he becomes like ensconced by the veil somehow. And there's like a, an energy burst from the whole thing. And, it's very weirdly worded. It's it's worded in such a way that you think there's more coming later. Oh, do y'all remember the theories? Ugh, like after this came out, there was a lot of speculation because the second spell that hit Sirius in the chest, the color's not described. So right. there were people right. being like, oh, it wasn't the killing curse. He just got stunned. So he's actually going to come back. He's not actually dead. Mm. No, sorry. It should have come back. I still think he's in there. <laughs> well, he's, yeah, he's in there. He's just not coming he's back. He's in there. <laughs> I mean, you, you'll see him again in Deathly Hallows. Yeah. To, are to all our... the people who have fallen through the veil just like hanging out on the other side? Yeah. Like, let us out. Let us out. Figure out how to get us out. Regarding Remus, though, how he the chapter ends with him like holding Harry back. I think even if somebody pointed this out before, but it. it even if Remus doesn't have all the answers, he wants to prevent Harry's going to just like frantically dive headfirst through the veil and they might not be able to get him out. So I think the priority is just preventing Harry from going in there at all costs. Mm. And it must take quite a bit of strength on the part of Remus to do this because that's his best friend that also just went through 
the veil to, to react in that moment to protect Harry takes just a tremendous amount of emotional strength, never mind physical strength in holding him back. But as far as, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm wondering about the veil now itself and just did people actually go through it? Was it used sort of as an execution chamber? Like that, oh, that's, that's interesting. We, we were talking about in the last episode, how the veil was there probably before the ministry well yeah somewhere or else at least the, they didn't build the ministry around the veil well i don't think i don't know about We've, that we like, definitely I, I'm, I'm just, theorized that because just to, how old it is it's like this amphitheater there's this veil it's almost like a portal has been opened and i wonder like what level of magic it would take to open that type of portal i'm sorry i don't or buy this for a second they're like where do we need where should we build our government offices around a veil that can kill people well it's the department of mysteries i mean wouldn't you want to protect something like that yeah from yeah and they transported they brought it in there but they didn't build it there because it mm. was there i think they built it there because like think of this if this really is the exact barrier between life and death so Sirius kind of literally falls through it but imagine if if somebody dies anywhere in the world that you could perhaps observe their soul passing from this earth into the next realm through this veil. Say that this is the very physical location or geographic location on the globe where every soul enters the afterlife truly, then you absolutely can't just have this thing hanging out. You're going to build a building with lots of security, except on pizza day, around this thing. <laughs> To pizza prevent people from getting in. Like the fact yeah. that Sirius literally goes through it is very weird. And that's why I always expected there to be more to the story. But I think it's mostly kind of a metaphor. It's like the equivalent of the river Styx, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then your soul goes to the underworld and then it either goes one way or the other, if, depending upon. If they were yeah. that concerned about the security of, about securing this thing. They would have put some extra layers of security up so people can't accidentally fall through it. Like what happened today? Put it in a glass box or put a gate up in well, front I, of it. I don't know. <laughs> There's a great social meme. Just put like a white picket fence up. Yeah. In front of yeah. There well, we go. Yeah. It would with have a been better dog. than what they have there now. Hey, it could be white like a, a the queue at the Wizarding World. You know, you just have a line. A line. You need a ticket to enter. Yeah. No return no, journey. I, I do <laughs> no think refund. there's a there's there's a good chance though that that this was something that was used back in the day yeah. as a means of execution. Like think about something equivalent of the Salem witch trials, and your punishment if you were convicted was you had to go through the veil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what are all these benches for? Yeah. 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 See, that would be great for somebody to expand upon. Somebody with knowledge about this somebody who wrote the book but yeah well and think about you know in the first fantastic beasts we see that macusa has their own form of yep. magical execution so who's to say that this is not mm. the uk equivalent very true so we thought we should play Sirius off with a song uh, to pay tribute to this wonderful character we asked on twitter what song should we play we got a lot of responses, so thanks to everybody who participated. Yana said, Highway to Hell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I love that. Yeah. Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. That That's was a good one. said by Faryal. Forever Young by Lauren. See, I think we need something emo and punkish. So I really liked this pick 
from Issy. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock takes life away. It's so unreal. Didn't look out below. Watch the time go right out the window. Trying to hold on to didn't even know. I wasted it all just to watch you go. I kept everything inside and even though I tried, it all fell apart. What it meant to be will eventually be a memory of a time I tried so hard and got so well, I've just been transported back yep, to back to high school. Back to every high school dance, every Friday night at the roller rink with my emo hair and my hot Laura topic was a belt. Punk. <laughs> Green Day super fan. Oh, over there. I was an emo kid for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, serious. He's emo. He's a rock and roller. You know, he loved all the classic rock bands back in the day. <laughs> um, not that Lincoln Park is classic rock. No. I just mean, he, I just mean he's in the rock. <laughs> well, if you look closely um, in Deathly Hallows in his room, there's actually a Dookie poster that uh, you can see. I mourn the loss of a father figure, which is why I have a little clip to play, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew. So why this song, Eric? Cats in the Cradle. <laughs> oh. By Harry Chapin. It's a beautiful story of never having the time together with your son, or it's kind of a son father relationship that you never really got the time that it deserved. Mm. Thank you for playing. Yeah, gr- Mention Green Day. I, I mean, I think Walking Contradiction would be a great song for Sarah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know that too. song. Micah knows Green Day. That surprises me too. Why does that surprise you? <laughs> I grew up with Green Day. I don't know. I thought he was a classical music type of guy. <laughs> Micah just sits around with I, a glass of class- whiskey, swirling it, <laughs> listening to classical music. Mm, yes. I do. Mozart. Yeah, but what you don't know is it, it's it's classical Green Day. Like, they play Green Day's music. Right, right. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's the chapter. It's time for the Umbridge suck count. And I don't think we have anything. Unless you want to give no. her one for existing, but I don't think that's very fair. <laughs> no. I think we can give her a break this yeah. week. Okay. Honestly. Okay. She's breathing a sigh of relief. That means it's now time for the MVP of the week. Like was alluded to earlier, I'm going to give mine to Neville for his courage. You know, he was he was the he was the true MVP of the week. And I just loved when he said, "Double door! Double door's here." I'm going to give mine to Harry for telling the Death Eaters that their leader is a half-blood. He just straight out comes and says it. I'm going to give it to Bellatrix Lestrange uh, for, I mean, obvious reasons, but just her introduction into this chapter and, and what she does by the end of it doesn't need to be spoken for. She does all that while pregnant, too. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. Um, I'm going to give mine to Dumbledore because they were all screwed until he showed up. <laughs> That's, well, hmm, okay. 
I don't know if that's entirely true, but... Hey, Harry has that moment where he's like, they were saved. No, I know. Doesn't mean he's right. It's time to rename the chapter, Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 35, One Less Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine reading that before you started the chapter? (laughs) I named the chapter, Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 35, Sears in Spheres. I went with uh, Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 35, The Evolution of Neville Longbottom. Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 35, Upshot of the Worst Plan Ever. Do you have any feedback about today's episode? Send it on in, mugglecast at gmail.com or use the contact form on mugglecast.com or call us, 19203-MUGGLE. That's 19203684453. Okay, it's time for Quizitch. Last week's question, what planet does not survive the battle in the Department of Mysteries? The correct answer, as Ron recounts the story, is, in fact, Pluto. Poor Pluto. Poor Pluto. Correct answers were submitted by Ann Smith, Sarah Wolf, Super Sarah, Robbie Stillman, Hallow Wolf, Jeff Skellington, Sydney, Caleb, Count Ravioli, William Walton, Rachel Bort Voldemort, and Jason King. Do you guys think this was a little bit of a prediction on J.K. Rowling's part? This uh, book came out in 2003, and in 2005, the International Astronomical Union said that Pluto was no longer a planet. It is eerie. Some classic J.K. Rowling foreshadowing. She knew this was going to happen. Just obliterated. Checked off the list. Once again, injecting her politics into the books. Just had to comment on Pluto, whether or not it was a planet. Her interstellar politics. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that is that. Next week's question. Who tells Cornelius Fudge that Voldemort is back? He's back. His eyes. Uh, Well, it's also in the book. (laughs) Yes, that's true. But in the book, it's a ponytailed man. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Submit your answer to us on Twitter, twitter.com slash mugglecast. Also follow us there and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And we would love your support at patreon.com slash mugglecast. You can get access to our live streams so you can hear us record in real time. It's a lot of fun. We typically record on Saturday or Sunday morning. You also have access to bonus mugglecast. And as we teased earlier in the episode, this week we will be discussing in bonus mugglecast, do the Death Eaters care? That Voldemort is a half-blood. They seem to conveniently ignore this little tidbit when it's shared in the chapter. So we're going to talk about that further. We record two bonus MuggleCast installments every month. And they're a lot of fun. And if you become a patron, you will have instant access to all of the bonus MuggleCast installments we've done so far. And you'll get access to years of other bonus content as well. So again, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. Our Patreon is the reason we are a weekly podcast and we're having so much fun doing it. So thank you to everybody who supports us there. We really appreciate it. And also thank you for listening. It means a lot. And also for writing in all the things. No matter how you engage with the podcast, we deeply appreciate it. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.